Our scripture reading this morning will be taken by John 16, verses 12 through 14. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That scripture is going to become increasingly clear and important as the next couple of weeks unfold uh, in this uh, series. Now, some of you are probably looking at that title and tempted to walk out the door before we even start. Don't blame you. It wasn't exactly catchy little ditty, was it? Not punchy, uh, how to overcome something or how to understand this. It's, it's a little bit heady. Sounds like the, the title of a magazine article or a book that you don't want to read. The authority of scripture and the demands of moral agency. Next. So I apologize for that. I've just been... I didn't know how else to phrase it, and it's how my mind works. So I'm sitting in a meeting, and I hear someone say to another person, oh, such and such an author, somebody I've never heard of, is grappling with the intrinsic conflict between ourselves as subjects and moral agency, subjects of God. And I thought, boom, this whole thing explodes in my head. This just little window into Greg's world here. Not that that's all that important, um, but I thought you ought to know where the title came from. This thing explodes in my head, and I start thinking about this, and I can't let it go. I'm, I'm waking up not at night to think about this, but I'm waking up anyway because I'm sore from boot camp or I need to get a drink or something, you know. So I'm waking up and all of a sudden then my mind is spinning on this thing about, yeah, the authority of Scripture and moral agency. So it's what you're stuck with, but I hope that we can make it simple and clear. Actually, I don't hope we can make it simple because it really isn't simple. And this is where I'm going to challenge you over the next few weeks to grow and stretch yourself a little because somewhere along the line, we, we all, if we can, if we have the facility, the capacity, if we have the uh, access to the materials and so forth, we all need to learn and grow in, in our journey and our walk. And that's part of what discipleship of Christ is all about. Now, I'm going to start at a, at a, I'm going to back it way, 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 way up and start at a place I think most of us are familiar. And that's sort of a simple layout of the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. A sort of simple layout on a Bible study you might do in three or four or five texts with somebody about why the Scriptures have authority. Now, let's just break that down for just a second. Scripture, by that word, I mean the Bible as we've come to know it, in particular the Protestant Bible, and in particular uh, just understanding that the English language Bible in general is derived, that the Bible wasn't written in English, it didn't fall out of the sky in English, it has been translated from a myriad of languages, including Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But I mean, there's all kinds of other stuff in there, Akkadian and Hittite, you know, we could 
never mind. It's it's almost endless list. And scholars spend lifetimes understanding uh, these languages and, and even simple phrases or what appear to be translated as simple phrases in the English and Scripture. So that part itself is, is not complex. But we start with that definition of Scripture and we move to the idea of authority. And what, what happens is we, we make claims about this body of literature, this thing called the Bible, And some of the proof for those claims are found internal within the text itself. Now, for those of you who are professors of logic, um, that's problematic in and of itself because a thing can't usually testify about itself. But backing up from that, we find that it is the diversity of Scripture and the way in which it works that allows some of those claims to make sense and to stand. So we take those claims that Scripture makes for itself. We look at the way Scripture has been used through the centuries and applied. We see the results in the creation of a community, ultimately, who look at and try to understand this Scripture and live by its principles and tenets. And ultimately, we yield ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Now, this becomes very helpful Because it gives us, if you will, a boundary and it gives us a vast field of things to learn and know. It does both for us. It creates a tremendous volume. I mean, think about how long it might take you to read through the entire scriptures and then how long it might take you to have specific understanding of each of its 66 books and then to have an idea of how these themes relate from one chapter to the next and then to understand dating and authorship. And I mean, it's, an, it's just layer after layer of complexity and depth and it's wonderful. We have this rich, rich tool. But for most of us in just sort of a more quick understanding and read of how Scripture applies, it becomes a sort of safety net, a a fence, a border for our lives that help us understand right from wrong, how we ought to live, how we ought to act, how we ought to be in community, and those, those kinds of things. We derive our doctrine and we derive our teaching from the authority of Scripture. You with me so far? Still don't want to read this article, do you? (sighs) It's okay, I'll wake you up at the end. All right. So with that little background, we find the scriptures used for a lot of different things. And I don't have time this morning. I'm going to reference a ton of scripture, and if you want it, I can send it to you via via email or... um, You can look it up, or you can write down the references as I read them. I'm not going to take the time to fully reference and read everything uh, this morning because there's so much in the Bible that talks about the place of Scriptures. One of the key parts of Scripture that I'm just going to talk about a minute before I get to reading is the prophetic role of Scripture. Now, really, Scripture itself doesn't play a prophetic role. The prophet does. And we'll see in a little bit that we understand that the prophets spoke and they wrote as they were moved by the Spirit. In other words, there's a sense of revelation. And this is something that adds to the credibility or challenge of Scripture, depending on your point of view. For us, it's credibility as believers. And we see the fulfillment of 
of prophecy in Scripture as proof of the divine influence. Does that make sense? In other words, God's behind it because it comes true. We, we see it to be fulfilled when something is spoken. So this prophetic aspect in Scripture is very important, and it's particularly important for us as Adventists. Because in the prophetic aspect, we understand two things to happen. One I just mentioned, there's a sort of timeline we can trace. So we see a prophet speaking and we see something fulfilled. For example, Jesus speaks in Matthew 25, I want to say, about the destruction of Jerusalem. Forty years later, sure enough, there it is. It happens. So you can see the prophetic words spoken and later written, and then you can see the fulfillment in 70 AD as Jerusalem is destroyed. So there's, there's that sort of, of, that's a simple illustration, but there's that sort of thing happening. Now Daniel, I hope you're all familiar with Daniel. Daniel, in nine, chapter 9, verse 2, says this, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, that's an interesting thing. Daniel, who we understand to be a prophet himself, a very important man in his day, references Jeremiah's word as the prophet in aiding him to understand something that is yet to come. So the scriptures are already referred to way back in Old Testament times. Because each generation that has lived has had a set of scriptures. Ours is just a lot bigger than Daniel's was. Daniel had a limited number of scriptures. He had a lot of the wisdom literature. He had the Pentateuch. He had some of these pieces. But he certainly didn't have anything in the New Testament. And nothing from the late prophetic period. He didn't have Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, that sort of stuff. He didn't have that. So Daniel's referring to the scriptures as that body of authoritative literature that has been God-breathed or inspired. And so he looks to Jeremiah the prophet in his word to give him some understanding about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's just a little snippet passage, but it kind of gives us an idea. The scriptures, Jesus often quoted this way. He would say, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Or today, scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Or he would say, the scriptures must be fulfilled. So that scripture would be filled, Jesus said this or said that. Constantly, Jesus referred to the scriptures as testifying about himself. Anybody remember the road to Emmaus story? I think it's Luke 24. In that story, Jesus catches up with two of the apostles who are walking. And he begins to share with them. And it says in this story explicitly, he told them all of the prophecies of Scripture concerning himself and how they were fulfilled. So Jesus' own understanding of Scripture and his own use of Scripture 
has a prophetic element. He sees the Psalms and he sees the prophets as pointing forward to a time when a Messiah would come, a Redeemer, Deliverer would come. And he highlights these for the apostles on the road to Emmaus. And later they say, were not our hearts burning within our chests? Didn't we just know that something incredible was happening in that moment? He was explaining the scriptures, that he was with us again in that time. Something incredible happened as Jesus explained how the scriptures applied to him. Remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's standing in Nazareth and he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ear. And this was about the Messiah. And they, they went nuts. They came after him. Jesus saw the scriptures as something that pointed forward, that something that needed to be fulfilled, something that would be fulfilled. He also saw the scriptures as something to do battle with. Remember his retreat into the desert? It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted scripture to the devil in order to resist temptation. We've been taught to use scripture in that same way. Jesus used scripture in another way. He used it in a rabbinic way, in his discussions with Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees would come to him and say, you know, a man, a woman was married to a man, and he died. And she married another man, and he died. And she married another man, and he died. And pretty soon all of us are thinking, black widow, black widow, poison in the coffee, poison in the coffee. And she married another man, and he died. And she married another man, and she Big, big bucks in insurance money. That's what we're thinking about this time. See the little matrix we impose over the scriptures there? But anyway, gets to the end of the story and uh, she's had seven husbands and who is she going to be married to in heaven? I don't know if I'm connecting the right response to the right story, but Jesus basically says, you don't get it because you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you would know. Time and time again, Jesus challenges them with a brilliant logic, but also with the word. He challenges them with scripture and helps them, helps use the authority of scripture to maintain discipline, in this case, I guess, distance, authority. He understands them. So what can we get from this before we move on into our simple study? We get from this several things. First of all, scriptures have always been, as long as there's been an oral or written tradition, there's been a sacred body of text. And particularly once the written tradition began, they began to be collected and copied and used as authoritative pieces. So that's very important. That's very important. We recognize that sort of history and we accept what we take in Scripture. And then we begin with another process. What do we have to do? You've heard sermons like this. I think my wife heard one that was memorable. I may need your help, Jill. God's Word, how we need it. God's Word, we must read it. God's Word, we must heed it. Was it something like that? Preached uh, by a pastor once. See, I didn't have a clever title like that. I'm sorry, it didn't rhyme, you know. But I'm going to give you more than that sermon. 
What the pastor was talking about is the necessity of word, and then if it's there, what we must do with it, which was what? Read and heed. So we obey it, we yield to it, and we must know what it is that we're yielding to and obeying. We've got to read it. We have to have some comprehension of what it is that we're, we're about. It's an interesting thing to me to meet Christians who've never read the Scriptures. That's, that's a challenge. That is an interesting piece. Because how do you follow something you don't know? How do you absorb or implement or live out something that you haven't uh, taken a look at? How do you take the complexity of something and just from little sound bites try to put together a picture that you hope would be accurate? So the sermon is true. We need God and his word and inspiration in our lives. We need to read that word and then we need to follow that word. But since I'm already done with that sermon, I think we'll move on. first text, and we will take a minute with these, so if you want to try to uh, look these up and follow along, you're welcome to, is Psalm 119.105. I'll be reading entirely from the New International Version today. This is probably the first thing we learn about Scripture when we're growing up, if we've had a religious training or background at all. Say it with me, because you memorized it in kindergarten. We'll say it in the King James. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How many of you learned that in kindergarten? Yep, that was one of the first things we learned about Scripture. We didn't fully understand that, but we could get the idea that on a dark trail you needed a flashlight, right? Couldn't you understand that even as a kindergartner? And that life was like the dark trail and the flashlight was like the Word of God. So one of our first things we came to understand was that God's word was a source of illumination. The scripture was a source of light. Well, these aren't in any particular biblical order, but let's turn to Timothy 4. Oh yeah, which one? I'll find out for you. First Timothy four, twelve to fourteen. We usually look at this text as a uh, statement about youth and not discouraging youth in leadership and uh, not putting down youth involving kids in church and life. But there's a few phrases here that are interesting. Don't let anyone look down on you, Paul says, because you are young, but set an example for the unbelievers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. So that's possible even for youth. Verse 13, until I come, in other words, until I return to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now, he has a ministry, and the context of what Paul is saying to him is that ministry. But I think it's interesting how he's not to neglect the reading of Scripture and then preaching and teaching about it. Now, we don't all have a public ministry, but there's something really interesting in that phrase, in that, in that sentence there, in that we could all do with reading and reciting and teaching. In other words, The best way to learn something is to what? 
teach it. If you want to learn something, teach it. How many of you have had a boss say, I want a presentation next week on XYZ. You're going to be the presenter at our staff meeting. How many of you have had that happen? Yeah. Did you learn your stuff for that meeting? You did, didn't you? You didn't know everything when he asked you to do that, or you didn't have it all assembled, but you put it together and you learned. So if we want to know what Scripture says, part of it has to do with with teaching others what it says. But this is also interesting, verse 14. Don't neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, there are two components here. The gift of the Spirit was given to Timothy in the laying on of hands. And the Spirit's influence was not to be neglected. The Spirit's gifts, the Spirit's power, and the Spirit's influence. Because you see, I think it was Jesus who said even Satan knows the Scriptures. The prophetic message is key to the ongoing engagement of Scripture. The ongoing engagement of what transcends Scripture, which is what we're getting to eventually. And that is the Spirit and His truth. Next text I want to look at is Romans 15. Uh, I think First Romans is what I want here. <laughs> Romans 15, 3 to 5. Those of you with Second Romans in your Bible, please come see me afterward. I have a free Bible for you. 15, 3 to 5. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. There's Paul quoting the scripture. Because as he writes this letter to the Romans, it is not scripture. It becomes that later. Verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to what? Teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Isn't that fabulous? It's there to give us encouragement and hope. Now, I have to caution you, one of the challenges of scriptures, you open there to Second Samuel and start reading one of those battles or list of people that you can't pronounce, it's not particularly encouraging. Some of you have had that experience. It's not particularly that which is going to give you hope even in that moment. But verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit among unity, a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Now that's the crux of it, isn't it? You have the scriptures, but you have the God who is the God of the scriptures. And more than that, the God of the things we need from scripture, endurance, encouragement. He is the one who gives us these things as we follow Christ. But I just thought I would highlight in a classic sort of Bible study, if we were going through and you were saying, Pastor, why should I pay any attention to the Bible? I would start with Psalm 119. I would go to Timothy eventually, maybe not in this order, and just say, you know, this is one of the priorities that was placed upon the early church. I would go to Romans and say Paul himself notes that everything written in the past was to teach us. I would go to 2 Timothy three fourteen to 17. 2 Timothy three 
14 to 17. You all know this one as well. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here's the famous one. All Scripture is inspired or God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There it is. Pretty comprehensive text, this quintessential one, isn't it? If you could find one that sort of summarized the value of Scripture and why we would bother with it, here it is. It's God-breathed, it's given by inspiration, and it's useful for the following things. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. There is a deep sense of connection between word, small w, and God. That is to say, the word that is inspired, the word that is given. We thank God continually because when you received the word, small w, of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word, small w, of men, but actually, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now I have a question for you. How can something you've never read and don't know be at work in you? Or how can you believe? Any thoughts? Okay, this is the simple stuff. It's going to get harder from here, so bring your quiz paper next time. It's going to get harder from here. There's a strong sense in this passage, as you know, of God being behind the word small w, the inspiration. And this is posing for us a very special challenge. Because if all scripture is this way, what happens when we read something that seems to us to be truly awful? Let me give you an example that's going to point us a little distance into the future. If you look up slavery in scripture, you find encouragement, well, in the Old Testament, it's rather abysmal, actually. You find what reparations have to be given or what prices paid if slaves are abused in certain ways. You find lots of references to slavery in Scripture. And even in the New Testament, you don't find any clear denunciation of it. So that as little as 150 years ago, 160 years ago, Bible-believing people in the United States used Scripture to validate the position of the necessity of enslaving the Negro and continuing to keep them as slaves. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. What do you do with this. Are you beginning to see the dilemma? If we stick to the word as we read it, as we look at the stories and as we look at the context of counsel, 
it would appear that in some things we are stuck. Because if we're to be followers, strictly speaking, of this very simplistic read on the word, would we not also think that slavery should be okay? If the scripture has no problem with it, and therefore it would appear God has no problem with it, should we have a problem with it? I hope you're not struggling too hard with that question. Because the, it will depend on your perspective and your history and your understanding, but that's the challenge that we come to with moral agency. See, as a moral agent, as a created and thinking being, as a person imbued with rational thought and capability, as one who can study and see the differences and similarities among peoples, as one who can objectively measure and identify various factors, as a person who can think through empathetically and emotionally what would it be like to be the one enslaved. As one can look at the system of injustice that is purported as a moral agent, I can say unequivocally, I don't, at this superficial level, it doesn't matter what scripture says. Slavery is immoral. Slavery is wrong. Slavery is abuse of human persons. And all I have to believe is that we are created and created in the image of God, diverse in that image. And that one belief alone should be enough to inform me that no human created in the image of God has the right to enslave another human created in the image of God. But I didn't go to the scriptures to say that. I didn't quote anything from New or Old Testament to make that statement, did I? No. I had to rely on moral agency. Well, we're going to be talking a lot more about this because it is where the Spirit will lead. It is where Christ wants to grow us as his followers. Let's, let's look at a few of these other classic texts. Hebrews 4.12 is one of, the, one of the well-known ones. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I love the way the message puts it. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. And that's a powerful statement about how we understand Scripture from within Scripture. Second Peter 1, 19-21. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we understand to be inspiration, that which is God-breathed. There is... Here we get into a whole complexity. I could do an entire series. We could have a guest lecture come talk to us for a week about inspiration. Just that one word. What it is and what constitutes it. How it's composed and understood. How it influences scripture in our lives. There's a well of depth there. But we have the words as they've been translated to English. Prophecy is not something we make up. It's not something that finds itself in men's ideas, but it's something that men speak from God as they're carried along in the Spirit. John says the Spirit blows and we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So this is all a little scary, isn't it? 2 Peter 1, 12. I'm going to start in 16, actually, 116. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when you told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And that is simply testimony to the power, the real power of witness and testament. Well, there's much more. There's a lot of apologetic in Scripture. Beware of scoffers in the last days particularly. And I wonder if we could put that in contemporary English. If you go to a website any website on atheism or agnosticism. Uh, you go to a lot of, lot of blogs in science. There's coming to be tremendous criticism of Christians. And the ways in which these criticisms are framed are often very, very difficult for people to deal with. Because what they get at is things that we can't always understand immediately or explain. And what they appeal to is the tension that we actually live, whether we know it or not, between a stated and felt belief in the inspiration and authority of what God gives us and what we must understand or do as moral agents, as well as understanding the complexity of the origin of God's word. Well, how can I summarize so that we can go home with something simple and pure? Here's what I want to say to you today. We're going to be looking at scripture in some of its complexity we're going to be looking at Scripture in some of its challenge and some of its depth. We're going to look at Scripture 
sometimes from a critical point of view because we want to be equipped when the world says, what about? And we want to be able to give a reason for our faith. We're going to talk about experience a little bit and its role in our lives and scripture. And we're going to talk about discipleship and what it means to be people who make choices according to spirit, not necessarily according to law. And that's the next step in discipleship. We're going to finish today with this understanding. We have a text. We have a God we believe who inspired it and gave it to us and that all of it is useful in some way or another for our knowledge, for our instruction, for our teaching, for our moral development, for our training, for our discipline and discipleship, for our understanding of who God is, for our purpose and for our growth. All of that's there. Right? We have that piece. We've read it in Scripture. Now we're going to take that and we're going to grow with it. We're going to take the learning and the other pieces and grow with it so that we have a better understanding of what that really means and so that we'll be able to give a strong answer for our faith. Because, well, we need it. The world is changing fast. And when Paul wrote his apologetic, that is to say his answer for his faith, everybody believed in a God virtually. They even had in Athens a plaque for the unknown God. But we live in a world in which people not only don't know God, but they're not even inclined to believe there is one. So, I look forward to the next couple of weeks. Please don't read that title again and think, ah, not a book I don't want to read. But look at it and say, where is God going to take us? Let's join in the adventure together. And so, Lord, with joy, we go forth this week, possessed of your word and in possession of these scriptures. May we work to learn and know them, that by them you may speak truth into our lives, that we may be disciplined, that we may be taught, and that we may grow into yet more effective disciples of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. Amen.